Welcome to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. My name's Ed Piscor. I am Jim Rugg. We're continuing the Stan Lee deposition in the case of the Kirby's versus Marvel for the ownership of about 45 characters that hangs in the balance. Last week we got Stan Lee's interpretation of the creation of the, the heavy hitters, the X-Men, the Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Thor. We left off with a little bit of Nuance with the Ant-Man, I believe, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although at this point, two movies in, right? Yes, and uh, Stanley does not uh, let anybody forget that there will be a movie of this, there will be a movie of that coming forward. So it, it roots us in a period of time where uh, the Captain America movie is not out yet. And I think he mentions that there's a forthcoming Avengers thing in the works. And I remember that was a big deal where they were designing these universes, like, years ahead of time when they're establishing the Thor movie and the Captain America movie and talking about all of them coming together in an Avengers flick because that was just was not done ever like think about um, the Michael Keaton Batman and how um, Lando Calrissian plays Harvey Dent uh, in uh, in the first one and then in Batman Forever it's Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face so that chemical did a Something on both halves yeah. of his gimmick. I mean, I think you sum it up with the origin of those major books, major titles and characters. And it makes me wonder what we have to look forward to. Um, one of the interesting things, uh, and I think we commented on, was fanzines being yeah. used as evidence, you know, trying to piece together this history. So, yeah, I think it's just going to get, you know, more into the minutia of uh, Kirby's marginalia in the original art that we have records of. I assume, you know, this is all... I'm just guessing, but that's what we're trying to determine. Who is really the author creators of this stuff? How do you divide up this credit? And I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see, but, uh, Silver Surfer was a big topic of conversation, how it was introduced and Stanley on the record says that that was like out of nowhere, uh, in my X-Men grand design books, it's mandated. Like you have to put created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. You had to do that for Hulk. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, that's a result of some of the materials that we're discussing this go-around. I had to do it for Hulk on the title pages, but they didn't specify the size, so I made it very big. Made what very big? The uh, the credits, the, the uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby I credits, see. but the created by credit is, uh, is larger than all the other credits on that title page. So. Yeah, super cool, man. Uh, so without further ado, we have links in the description below this video to the previous parts of this Stan Lee deposition. And the way we're playing the game this go-round is that I'm the voice of everybody who's not Stan Lee. So we're talking about potentially five different Marvel lawyers. Usually a Mr. Quinn is the guy who's the real mouthpiece. I just imagine the rest of those people... Uh, t uh, doodling vigorously on those yellow legal pads. I imagine them flipping through issues of Alter Ego. <laughs> <laughs> we have one uh, Mr. Toboroff, I believe, who is the lawyer for the Kirby estate. There's a Stan Lee lawyer in there who's been pretty mum so far. So I'll do all of their stuff. Jimmy is Stan Lee. And if you're good, Jimmy, I'm good. The cameras go back on in the deposition boardroom at 11 no at 12:06 p.m. and Mr. Quinn asked the question Both. ladies and gentlemen cartoonist kayfabe is brought to you by two eisner 
award-winning New York Times best-selling comic book makers Jim Rugg, Ed Piscor, and the show is subsidized uh, daily by the comic books that we sell uh, and the works that we have that are forthcoming in 2022. Jim Rugg uh, in March has Hulk Grand Design Monster coming out uh, March... 30th. March 30th, man. These paper shortages are no joke. He's distilling down 500 uh, issues worth of Hulk comics into their purest essence and making two 40-page one-shots that are going to take all the best bits of that history of Hulk, uh, combining it into these individual issues. And it is a romp like no other. Got to get your hands on that thing. Uh, goosed by a couple of variant covers for Monster. Got the Marcos Martin cover, you got the Peach Momoko cover, you got the Eddie P by way of Todd McFarlane, Herb Trippy cover. Uh, these are not retail incentive covers, which means uh, you yourself can go to the comic shop, tell the uh, comic shop owner that you want all four covers. You will have all four covers in your pool box uh, the week that this comic comes out. Once again, those paper shortages, man, no joke. Red Room, uh, the Antisocial Network is the comic that is on the stands right now, but this is just the 2021 season of Red Room Comics. It's a new year. 2022, we'll see Trigger Warnings, issue number one, March 9th. This is the cover for the actual uh, issue one that you will see on the stands. Not only are there paper shortages, there was a ransomware attack at the distribution house. So uh, all the stores were not able to order these in the proper timely fashion. Might be kind of a rare comic. I'd like to see it sell out on day one. Uh, goosed by some more variant covers. This is the Eddie P retail incentive cover. Jim Rugg, uh, King K. Faber, has done a cover that is representative of Zap Comics Zero by way of Robert Crumb. And Peach Momoko comes in in the clutch to provide a Mistress Pentagram cover to top that off. Uh, we have Patreons in the link tree below. We have uh, links to get to our books in our link trees below. Now that we're done paying the bills, back to the video. Just to clarify, because we may have been talking over each other, who was it that came up with the idea for Ant-Man? I did. Okay. Uh, one more we can talk about right now is the Rawhide Kid. Tell us about the Rawhide Kid. I don't really know what to tell you. Martin, the publisher, he loved westerns, and we had a lot of western books, and he loved the name The Kid. We had Kid Called Outlaw, The Rawhide Kid, The Texas Kid. We had a few others I can't remember. He loved that word, and The Rawhide Kid was just one of the many westerns we had. And I, as far as I know, my brother had been doing most of them. He was writing and drawing them. I don't remember who started it. Maybe it was Jack that I did it with first. I probably wrote the first one. But it was just, I don't even remember. Maybe he was somebody wanted by the law, but he was really a good guy and nobody knew it and he just rode around the West having adventures. We didn't put a lot of thought into our Westerns really. They were all pretty much alike. Just a guy who is the fastest gun in the West and he fights bad guys. And with the Rawhide Kid, you followed the same practice of making the assignment and then overseeing it and editing it? Yeah. Switching to another subject, do you recall that sometime back in 2002 and 2003, you had a dispute with Marvel? Oh, yes. And what was that dispute about? Well, according to my contract, I was supposed to get 10% of the profits of Marvel's profits from the movies and television and things like that. And I felt I hadn't been getting it. 
Did, during the course of that dispute, did you ever say that you owned the characters and not Marvel? No, that wasn't part of the dispute. And from your perspective, who did you believe owned the characters? Say that again? Who did you believe owned the characters? I always felt the company did. Now, do you recall, during the course of that dispute, that my nice friend, Mr. Fleischer over there, took your deposition? I don't recall it, but I take your word for it. Somebody took it. I don't remember who. I'm going to show you a portion of that deposition. All right. And just ask you a couple of questions about it. We'll mark the deposition transcript itself as Stanley 8, Jack Kirby's lawyer. Uh, is this the entire transcript of the deposition? Mr. Quinn says, uh, yes, but I promise I won't play it all. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Did you want me to report it? Uh, that, that's the court reporter saying that. Uh, Mr. Quinn says, no. Video re recording playing. Mr. Quinn, the Marvel lawyer, said, uh, that was you up there, wasn't it? Looked like it. Now, is that testimony consistent with your current recollection? Yes. And truthful testimony when you gave it? Pardon me? It was truthful testimony when you gave it? Yes. Back in November, I guess, 2003? But we left out Thor for some reason. I don't remember Thor. Well, you've testified about Thor here. That's probably good enough. The videographer says, I'm sorry, we're getting some audio interference. Off video real quick. Marvel lawyer says yes. Videographer's fucking around. Mr. Quinn comes back. Good afternoon, Mr. Lee. Good afternoon. Uh, it's after the lunch break. We're going to mark, actually we have marked a couple of exhibits. Uh, as Lee Exhibit 9, we've marked some excerpts from audio and video clips that you're involved in, and we're going to be going to be listening and watching. Uh, in Lee 10, a compendium of labels from the University of Wyoming American Heritage Center, which labels various of these audio and videos indicating their dates and when they were done and with whom. Now, and I believe, uh, did we give copies to Mr. Toberoff? That's what those are. Now, Mr. Lee, you've given a lot of interviews over the years on the subject matter of the comic book industry. Yes. And also many speeches. Yes. And you've been involved in seminars? Yes. Kirby's lawyer says, excuse me if I can interrupt, the discs which say Stanley Deposition, is this from University of Wyoming? Marvel lawyer says, uh, I believe the materials that are on that disc, uh, or most of them, were from the University of Wyoming. Kirby's lawyer says, okay, and this is 10? Marvel lawyer says, that's 9. The labels are 10. Kirby's lawyer says, okay, Marvel. Uh, and were some of those interviews and speeches and seminars recorded visually or sometimes on audio? Some were, yes. And did there come a time when you donated copies of these videos and recordings to the University of Wyoming? Yes, I had so much around the house I didn't know what to do with it, and they offered to keep my effects and archive what they have. And was there a particular reason why you chose the University of Wyoming? Silly. If I had thought about it, I would have gone to a closer college, but they told me that Jack Benny had his archive there, and they would put mine next to his, and I was a big fan of Jack Benny's, and I figured if they have him, it must be a good archive. Seems sound to me. <laughs> Why not? Now, what I would like to do is play some audio and video from you and ask some questions about these particular excerpts. I believe, according to the Wyoming archives in 1966, you were interviewed by a man by the name of Jim Saunders, on his GabFest program on the radio. And I want to play an excerpt from that audio, and we'll have some questions about that. The audio plays. Now, was that your voice? It seems to be, yes. And was you describing what you told us was essentially the Marvel method in that recording? 
I have to be honest. I couldn't hear it very clearly, but I'm always talking about the Marvel method. And what you did here, is that consistent with your recollection? Yes. And Kirby's lawyer says, uh, could I just ask you, are you going to, <laughs> are you going to, the copies here, Lee 10, you've given me copies of audio discs and video discs with, with labels, the packaging, the packaging for these discs with a label. This is how it appears in the University of Wyoming. Mr. Quinn says, uh, these labels indicating, uh, yeah, yeah. Kirby's lawyer says, and are you, you played an excerpt from the first one in this package and you've given me Barry Gray, January 31st, 1966. Is that what you just played? Marvel says, I think we played one from 1966, a different one. It was identified on the record, Gabfest. Kirby's lawyer. So are you going to be producing the whole interview from which you just played this tiny excerpt? Marvel. Yes, we will be producing that. Kirby's people. Are you going to supply that to me today? The Marvel guy says, I don't think we have it all here today, but we will get it to you promptly. Kirby's lawyer says, okay. Mr. Lieberman, who I don't know, maybe a Stan Lee guy? Maybe. Uh, you have to sit where you can hear it, the, the witness. Yeah, I should. I will move over there next time. Kirby's lawyer and court reporter, are you taking down the audio? The court reporter says, no, Mr. Quinn said he didn't need me to. Kirby's lawyer says, I think the court reporter should take down the audio because, you know, the discs you're supplying me with on the deposition, uh, to make the deposition understandable, I think she should take down the audio that he's responding to. Marvel lawyer says, it's not a problem one way or the other, but it is on the disc, so you can play it and you will hear it. And uh, as the guy, as the guy's reading the deposition, I think it would be a good call to have that audio transcribed for our purposes. Uh, Mr. Fleischer might be another Marvel fella. It's not customary to have her, Kirby's lawyer says. Yes, but to have a, Marvel says, it's not. I think Mr. Fleischer is correct. It is not customary to do that. But it, if you're able to take it down, uh, do the best you can. But that disc is the actual record. It is, in fact, an exhibit to the deposition. So she may or may not get it correctly, given the facts that it's going to be difficult to hear. Kirby's lawyer says, I guess my question is the exhibit to the deposition is going to be that short little part of the interview that you just played, or is it going to be the entire interview? Marvel lawyer says to the deposition, the exhibit is going to be what we have marked as the, ex as the exhibit, which is the excerpts. Kirby's lawyer says, okay. Marvel guy says, okay. No, hopefully we'll have that and you'll hear it a little bit better. We have another excerpt and this one I want uh, to make sure that you can hear. This is according to University of Wyoming Archives, an interview that you gave to Mr. Mike O'Dell, WBAI-FM, New York Radio, in March 67, you and also Jack Kirby. Do you recall from time to time that you gave interviews with both yourself and, on some occasions, Mr. Kirby? Yes. Can we play that, and let's make sure it's loud enough, audio playing, uh, reporter as follows. So we do have a little bit audio transcribed by the unidentified voice. Mr. Lee and Mr. Kirby are going to be asked some questions about their superheroes. And I guess the first one uh, to be addressed to Stan Lee, and it's the title of this program, Stan will success spoil Spider-Man. Now that Captain America is back in the fight, is there going to be talk about sending... The reporter says, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't take that. Uh, question, uh, did you hear that correctly? 
I couldn't make out what the question was. I could make out... Let's play it again. Maybe if it is a little lower. See, my problem is I have a hearing problem. I can hear, but sometimes if the speech isn't clear, I can't make out the words. It sounds like blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yep, I know what you mean exactly. Kirby's lawyer says, uh, that sounds that sounds that for us also. Marvel lawyer says, let's play it again. And uh, here we go again. Mr. Lee and Mr. Kirby are going to be asked some questions about their superheroes. And I guess the first one would be addressed to Stan Lee and it's the title of this program. Stan, will success spoil Spider-Man? That's what I didn't... Uh, Stan what? Will success spoil Spider-Man? Oh, will success spoil Spider-Man? Then there's a question directed to Mr. Kirby. Play that. Audio record playing. Uh, the court reporter says, I can't report that, which is a bummer. Mr. Quinn says, now what I have to ask you is, whose voice was that we just heard? That was Jack Kirby's very distinctive voice. And when Mr. Kirby said in that interview we just heard that the editors always has the last word on that, is that, you agree with that? Was he referring to the question, would success spoil Spider-Man? No, he was referring to whether Captain America was going to be sent to Vietnam. I didn't hear that. Well, yes, I. if Captain America had been in this country and one of the writers decided hey, I think I'd like to send him to Vietnam and let him be part of the Vietnamese war or whatever, then I would have had to say okay, or I might have said to the writer, no, I'd rather keep him here. So you agree with Mr. Kirby that the editor always has the last word on that? Yes. Kirby's lawyer, counsel, are you going to be providing me at this deposition with a copy of these excerpts? Marvel's lawyer says, you have a copy of the expert excerpts in your hand? Kirby's... Uh, they're all Marvel. We're going to listen to them all together. Kirby's guy says, no, no, I'm talking about Marvel. They're all on that disc. Kirby, this is the Stanley deposition and the audios on this disc. Marvel, it's a clip from the Stanley deposition. It's all the audio and video. Kirby's lawyer, that was unclear to me. Thank you. Something about reading this, it wasn't unclear to me. But uh, this this Kirby guy seems like he's trying to just, uh, you know, justify his, his, his pay for the moment. All right. Mr. Quinn, the Marvel lawyer, says, OK, the next excerpt, according to the archives of in Wyoming, involves questions that were being posed by an unknown Frenchman to you. Let's play that. And I'm going to ask some questions about that unidentified voice. Again on this interview from this guy in France, my method for the construction of the script consists of discussing the story with the artist and having the artist do the penciled artwork on his own, drawing whatever he wants so long as it tells the stories we've discussed. Then would put in the dialogue and the captions and indicate where the dialogue and the captions, where the dialogue balloons are to be placed and where the captions go. And then the script goes to the inker. It's lettered, of course, and I have to proofread it and that's it. I proofread it myself, really, if it's my own story. Wow. <laughs> is that consistent? That's your voice, isn't it? What I could hear sounded right. The dialogue and the captions, and it goes to the, yeah, that was me. And that was the method you used. Yeah. Let's go to the next excerpt. Uh, this one from the archives is marked as NYU TV and dated March 16th, 1972. Audio recording playing reported as follows. Uh Good morning. I wonder if you could tell us who you are and what you do for the people that don't know. My name is Stan Lee and I produce comic books. There are 50 million reasons why we change artists. 
Sometimes we do it because the book isn't selling well to hype up sales. Sometimes we do it because an artist is simply tired of the job. He says, if you don't take me off this thing, I will go out of my skull and I want to do something else. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we do it. It's like falling dominoes. An artist is late or is sick and his book is late. So we have to take an artist off this strip to do that book quickly to make the printing date. So we have to take another artist off this book to do this book, which this artist came off. Now we have to take an artist off this book to do this book, and it goes right down the line. Again, is that your voice we just heard? Yeah, that was definitely me. And is that consistent with your recollection as to how you dealt with artists during this period of time? Well, I caught the falling dominoes part. I really couldn't understand what came ahead of it, but the falling dominoes was correct. And what do you recollect about the falling dominoes? Well, it was like if an artist couldn't do one book, you had to take another artist and give him that book, but then that artist had to be replaced on his book by another artist, and you had to keep shuffling them around. And who was in charge of shuffling them around? Well, I was. Now we have a video. This one is dated. That might be easier to hear. We can hope. Uh, this one is dated from January 12th of 2000, and according to the archives in Wyoming, University of Wyoming, it is an interview video that was done and distributed by the, I guess, Disney feature animation. Why don't we play this one? Video recording playing. Reporter as follows. Years later, Jack came back. I don't remember. I guess it was in the 50s, and it was great, and I would write scripts, and Jack would do the artwork. But then we were such a small company. I was doing most of the writing, most of the books, and let's say I would be writing a story for Jack and one of the other artists. Steve Ditko might walk in, or John Buscema, or Romita, or somebody, and they needed a script. Now these guys were all freelancers, and if I didn't have a script for them, they weren't getting paid. They were standing around with nothing to do. So I had finished typing the script for Kirby, and here's Romita who needs a script. So I said, look, John, I can't stop what I'm doing, but here's the story that I would like you to do. I will tell it to you. You draw it any way you want. I will put in the dialogue and the captions later. And he did. Then Ditko would walk in, and I would say to him and Gil Kane and whoever they were, now it was done originally in order to save time. It was sort of an emergency situation, but I found we're getting better stories and artwork that way. Because instead of me writing panel one, close up, blah, 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 panel, uh, a long shot from above or whatever, I was leaving it to the artist. And I was very lucky because I had the kind of artists who were great visual storytellers, and I'm sure that they dreamed up shots that I never would have even thought of. So when I got the artwork back from them, it was beautiful because they had the freedom to tell the story in their own way visually. Also, it was easier for me then to write the dialogue because, as you can imagine, if you're typing and looking at a blank sheet of paper, you're imagining what the people would say, and you're imagining how they would look in the drawing. But when you have the drawing in front of you, and when you see somebody drawn like, Arr! indicating, you know, you write R. It makes it so obvious. And what started as an emergency situation, it turned out, I thought, to be the best way to do the stories. And that, after a while, became known as the Marvel Method. And Jack Kirby and I would, let's say when we did the Fantastic Four, I first wrote a synopsis of what I thought the Fantastic Four should be, who the characters should be, what their personalities were, and I gave it to Jack, and then I told him, what I thought the first story should be, how to open it, who the villain should be, and how we would end it. And that was all. Jack went home and drew the whole thing. I put the dialogue in, and it turned out to be quite successful, and we worked that way for years. Now, did I correctly recognize that to be a slightly younger version of you? Yes, yes I do. Sorry, I didn't have my microphone on. That was you up there on the screen we just saw? Yes, it was. A couple years ago. Mm -hmm. You haven't changed much, and... Uh, 
what you were describing there was essentially the Marvel method. Yes. And the Jack that was being referred to repeatedly was Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, always. Let me just play two more, a couple more clips, uh, or another clip from this same interview. Video is playing. What input did I have in the visual development of the Marvel characters? Well, I had a lot of input in one sense. When I created the characters and the idea for the story, I would tell the artist how I wanted him to look. Now, is that consistent with your recollection of how you operated back in the 50s and 60s? Yes. And one more clip from that same interview. The video is playing. I never owned these characters. I did them as a work for hire. So the company owned the characters. And that's still consistent with what you believe today? Yes. Now, I want to mark, and I think we may have already marked it this one uh, i don't think we have a copy but i'm only going to ask a couple questions as exhibit 12 it's a book entitled origins of marvel comics by stan lee here we go uh and could you tell us what this book is at some time in the past simon and schuster wanted to do a book about marvel and they asked me to write it and they wanted to know how i came up with the ideas for the various characters what the origins were of the characters so I turned out this book, and they sold it. It did very well, actually. They asked for a sequel. I did Son of Origins of Marvel. Then I did one about the villains called Bring on the Bad Guys. And then I did one about the females called, I think, the Superhero Women. So there were four books in the set, and this was the first one. This one, I note, was copyrighted in 1974. Was that approximately when you did this book? Yes. And when you were doing this book and the other three books that make up the series... Did you make an effort to be as accurate as possible? I always try to be accurate. And as truthful as possible? Yes, I had to be because people were going to be reading it. And if I wrote anything that wasn't so, I'd sure hear about it. And okay, I want to go back over a little bit of that ground we already covered, uh, but using some excerpts from things that you've written or said in connection with the creation of some of the characters that we've talked about already. And let me mark, or I think we have uh, now marked another entitled uh, Stanley Conversations, which we've marked as Stanley 11, and I'm going to ask you whether you're familiar with this particular book. Yes. And whose mug is on that face? Whose face is on the... Oh, that's mine. Kirby's lawyer. Did you mark the prior book? Man, this guy. Uh, Marvel's lawyer. Yes, I believe we did. Have we marked this one? The reporter says, yep, bottom right, it's on this copy. Marvel. Yep, that one's marked. Uh, I need to get you copies of all of these. Kirby's lawyer. You don't have a copy of those? Marvel's lawyer. Today, I do not have a copy of that. Kirby's lawyer. I don't know why. With all this technology around and all these video clips and audio clips, you can't copy a book on a Xerox machine and give it to me at the deposition. The Marvel guy says, well, I'm sure we'll be able to get it to you, you know, promptly. The book, as I understand, happens to be very difficult to obtain, but in any event, let's do we have a copy of, no, the Stanley Conversations book? Uh, you have a copy of that one, I believe, or the excerpts that we're going to refer to, Mr. Toboroff. You could certainly utilize the ones that's marked, uh, if you would like, with regard to the origins of Marvel Comics. Since I'm not going to ask him any questions about it beyond his identifying it, let's take a look, uh, if you would, at page 137. Which book? Of the red book right there, the one that has your picture on the cover. First of all, tell me what this book is. Oh, I have a fan who's been writing to me a lot who is a professor at some Canadian college. And one day he asked if I would mind if he did a book. He collected a lot of interviews I'd done. And would I mind if he put some of those interviews in book form? Because 
he's expect as part of his job at the college he's supposed to do books every so often and he chose this subject and i said sure you know be my guest and this is the book he did so this is a compendium of interviews that you gave over the course of i believe about 30 years because it covers yeah from 1970 to the late 90s kayfabe conjecture real quick the conversations books are awesome i have uh harvey picor one dan Klaus one alan moore one and there is a narrative that is struck because they put them in a linear order. So you watch them uh, throughout every stage of their career. And there's a narrative that plays plays throughout there. And also, you get a different sense of their confidence level as you continue through these interviews. And when you get a guy like Klaus who's real young, he's got that braggadocia. That's the one where he has the, the uh, he copy edited <laughs> some of the Gary Panther stuff yep. out of the blab piece. Great documents. I didn't. I actually didn't know there was a Stan Lee one. I have a Milt Kniff one. I never really looked at the years, but yes, he took various things that he could find from my interviews and put them in a book. Okay, and let's look at, I believe, so we have that for the record. This is a book uh, that shows it has a copyright date of 2007. Is that about when he... Yeah, I guess so. When it was distributed. Uh, okay, could you take a look at page 137 of this book? Right. And this is an interview according to page 134 that you gave Roy Thomas in 1998. You've already told us who Roy Thomas is. Uh, and I want to refer specifically to toward the bottom of page 137. I'm going to read an excerpt from what you are answering, Mr. Thomas, that it asked you. Uh, that would have been in the late 40s or early 50s, I guess, in terms of when the issues left the office. Less than a year later, you became the temporary editor. That lasted for decades. Now, skipping ahead to 1961, the story has often been told about the infamous legendary golf game with Martin Goodman and President uh, uh, DC Comics president Jack Leibowitz, in which Leibowitz bragged about the sales of Justice League of America, and Goodman came back and told you to start a superhero book. Was that story really true? Yes, as far as I know it was. He told me he had been golfing with, I think it was Jack Leibowitz, somebody who was high up at DC. And they told him that Justice League was a big selling book. So he came and said, let's do one like it with a lot of heroes. And you answer here, that's absolutely true. He came in to see me this one day and said, I've been playing golf with Jack Leibowitz. They were pretty friendly. And he said, Jack was telling me that Justice League is selling very well. And why don't you do a book about a group of superheroes. That's how we happen to do the Fantastic Four. That's right. And that's consistent with your recollection of your prior testimony? Yes. Now, uh, could we play from the University of Wyoming archives a portion of a talk according to the archives you gave at the Atlanta Fantasy Fair on July 26, 1984? I'm going to show you a clip of that. Uh, video is playing. Martin came to me one day. He said, you know, Stan, I was looking for sales figures and DC has a book called, I never can remember, is it Justice League or Justice Society, but whatever it was. He said, it's selling pretty well. Maybe there's a market for a team of superheroes. Why don't you come up with one? And I said, okay, but I didn't want just another DC type, you know, a team of superheroes, not that there's anything wrong with what they did. So I had to do a team because that's what the publisher wanted, but I had to tr try to figure out a way to do it differently. And I figured, okay, what can we do that's different? Let's make a team that doesn't always get along well together. They fight amongst themselves. Let's have the girl be the fiance of the hero so it's not a case of she doesn't know his identity or anything. They're about to get married, and in a later issue, we'll have them get married and have a kid and all that. 
and let's make one of the heroes an ugly guy and that'd be a good thing. And then I thought it would be really great to take a character from the 1930s and bring him back again. That would be Human Torch, whom I have had always loved. But I decided to make him a teenager, which I had always hated. But I figured I'll make him act like a real teenager. He's rotten and nasty and fights with the thing. Boy, I was good. <laughs> that was you up there in that video? It sure was. And who was the other guy? I don't know. Was it Jim Shooter? Hmm. Was it Jim Shooter? It could have been. Uh, I was looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> could you identify or tell us who Jim Shooter? Jim Shooter was, at some point he became editor-in-chief of Marvel, and he was there for a few years. I forget the exact years, way after Roy Thomas. Sometime after Roy Thomas. Right. He was more recently the editor-in-chief. And looking at the video excerpt again, that's consistent with your recollection as to how the Fantastic Four was created? Yes. Next, we have a video, I guess. Uh, I think it's from the same interview we saw before. This is the Disney feature animation interview, January 12th, 2000. And this one relates to the Silver Surfer. Can we play Silver Surfer? Yeah. I remember saying to Jack, I want to get a villain who is more powerful than any other. Let's call him Galactus and let's make him a demigod because we already had Dr. Doom, who was the king of his own country. How can you be bigger than that? So we came up with Galactus. Okay, now I gave Jack a rough idea of the story. He drew it and gave it to me, and when I looked at the artwork, there is some naked nut on a flying surfboard that I didn't, I didn't uh, know anything about him. I said, who is this? So this is what made the work fun. I never knew what to expect. So Jack said, well, I figure anybody as powerful as Galactus who wants to destroy planets ought to have a herald who goes ahead of him and finds the planets. I thought that was a great idea. So normally Galactus would have just been a herald. I mean, the Silver Surfer would say, hey, Galactus, there's a planet. Go get it, you know. But there was something about the way that Jack drew the Silver Surfer in the artwork. He had a certain nobility. He was so great looking. And I said, you know, Jack, let's really, because Jack figured we'd only use him once and throw him away. I said, I like this guy. Let's use him. And little by little, we started putting him in the stories. And the next thing I knew, I have him philosophizing and moralizing and all the corny bits of philosophy that I might have liked to find a way to get across started coming out of the Silver Surfer's mouth. And once again, that's you up there. It certainly is. And on the, on the screen. And that's consistent with your recollection as to how Silver, Silver Surfer came about? Yes. Let's go, let's look back at this book again. The book, which is Stanley Conversations, and focus on page 96. Uh, this is from an interview that you gave, according to page 85, an interview with Stanley by Leonard Pitts in 1981. And this was one of the many interviews that you gave during this period of time. Mm-hmm. Let's look at page 96, and in the middle of that page, uh, Pitts is asking you about Spider-Man, and you say, I remember when I was a kid years old, uh, there was a pulp magazine called The Spider, Master of Men, and I always thought that the title was so dramatic. He was nothing like Spider-Man. He was just a detective who wore a mask, and when he, and he went around punching people. He wore a ring with a spider insignia so that when he punched somebody, it would leave a little mark of a spider on the person. And I figured, gee, why not call the guy, my guy, Spider-Man? And Pitts asked you, although Spider-Man is arguably the most popular single superhero in comics, legend has it that your publisher, Martin Goodman, took a lot of convincing when you wanted to try that character out. And you say, uh, he said it was the worst idea he ever heard. Uh, he said people hate spiders and it sounded too much like Superman. The idea of someone sticking to walls and stuff, he called it grotesque. Do you recall that interview, and is that consistent with your recollection 
uh, of the development of Spider-Man. Yes, it is. We have another track uh, that, according to University of Wyoming Archives, is a lecture that you gave at Virginia Tech. Uh, you'd get around uh, back in those days. Yeah, I did. A lecture that you gave at Virginia Tech on November 15th, 1977. And I'd like to play that one uh, for you as well. Video is playing. One reason was, as a kid, I had loved a pulp magazine named The Spider. I was very young and probably very stupid. And to me, the most dramatic thing I could think of the cover of this magazine, the series of magazines, was like the shadow, but not as famous. It said, The Spider, and underneath it, Master of Men. Somehow to me, at the age of nine, the spider, master of men. Oh, I would love to be. Who wouldn't want to be a master of men? And he had a ring, and he would punch a bad guy in the face, and it had a little spider thing on the ring, and it would leave a spider mark on the guy's jaw. I mean, you know, next to Shakespeare. So when I was looking around for a character, I felt, gee, I've always kind of liked the spider. Why don't I get a guy and call him Spider-Man? So I presented that to my publisher, who, as you may have gathered by now, is a model of erudition. And he said, nah, nobody likes spiders. That's no good. So I said, well, it's not a case of people liking spiders. Remember, there used to be a green hornet. I don't think people are turned on to hornets. No, nah, I don't like it. Forget it. Anyway, I couldn't get him to advance the funds to put out this book. So finally, we introduced Spider-Man in another magazine called Amazing Adult Stories, which we were going to kill. The book was dying, and at the last issue of that book, when we were about to kill it off, just to get it out of my system, I threw the Spider-Man story in. We got our sales figures later, and it was the best-selling book we had ever had. We made it into a series, and a few months later, my publisher came to me, and he said, You know, Stan, Spider-Man, the best idea I ever had. That was it. Little kayfabe conjecture. It's interesting to think about like what that must mean when they talk about like the sales figures coming back, because this is newsstand distribution. So, uh, you know, you publish eight, eight, 800,000, you print 800,000, you get back... 400,000, but when Amazing Fantasy 15 comes out, you publish 800,000 and you get back 150,000, and that lets you know that it sells good. Very weird. Yes. Back to the game. Uh, Mr. Quinn, again, that was you talking about the origins of Spider-Man. That's right. And that's consistent with your recollection as to how Spider-Man came about? More or less, yeah. Let's talk about the Hulk. You have an excerpt uh, according to the University of Wyoming archives of a speech that you gave at the L.A. Festival of Books in May 1998. And this particular part focuses on the creation of the Hulk. My publisher at that time, I worked for a publisher, and he said, hey, come up with something else. So I was trying to think what could be different than a guy who bursts into flame and flies, an invisible woman, an orange skin, unintelligible, and a guy who stretches. And I remember I had always loved the Frankenstein movie. You know, the one with Karloff. I always thought that the monster was really the good guy. He didn't want to hurt anybody, but those idiots with torches were chasing him up and down the mountains and making his life miserable. Then I also liked Jekyll and Hyde. I loved the idea that this nice, gentle, dignified, intelligent doctor, I'm sure it was modeled after me, he suddenly turned into the most savage, evil guy in the world. And I thought, why don't I combine the two? I will take a normal guy, that was Dr. Bruce Banner, and I will have him turn into a monster. But this monster would be good, like I thought the Frankenstein monster was, but nobody will know he's good. Anyway, I came to my publisher and I said, hey, I've got an idea for your next book. We're going to do a green-skinned monster. He said, that's great. That's a great villain. He said, who's the hero? 
I said, he's the hero. He said, wait a minute, Stan. You just said you're going to do a green-skinned monster. Oh, wait a minute. I'm lying to you. I wanted him to be gray-skinned, and I don't remember why. I don't know why I thought of gray, but I thought that was kind of mysterious and dark. So in the first issue, those of you who may have ever seen it, he had gray skin. But here's what happened. The printing process, I guess, weren't as well-made or as sophisticated in those days. And on some of the pages, his skin was light gray. On some, it was medium gray. On some, it was totally black. So it was different shades on every page. So there are no flies on me. And since when you're the writer of a comic book, you can do anything. You're like God. So I said, the second issue, we're going to change his skin color. And I looked around. What color aren't we using? And it happened that nobody was green at the moment. So I made this very intelligent decision. I said, let's make him green. Another conjecture piece. It's verbatim, the stuff that he gave as testimony already. Verbatim. Like, even the pregnant pauses, I bet you, aren't that dissimilar. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, like, we know a lot more about memory now than we probably did. Well, I guess this is 2010, but, but you know, over time, our understanding of memory is much greater. And the more you, quote-unquote, recall something, the more your memory erodes. Right. So these are stories that, you know, he's going to Virginia Tech. He's delivering lectures at colleges all over the place. He's doing interviews. And he's telling these stories over and over again. They just become the stories. Yeah. You know, like, it's hard to tell. When we read this now, and, and it's like, oh, gol Martin Goodman's golfing with Jack Leibowitz. I'm like, I wonder if that ever even took place. We've right. heard that story 5,000 times, but who was there? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's Do we only know it from Stan Lee recalling it many years later? And I feel like that with every piece of this, because, like, he's consistent for sure. Mm -hmm. But... These are stories that he honed on the road for hundreds, thousands of times, maybe, that these have been told. Road tested. Back to the game. Again, that was you? Yes, it is. And that's consistent with your recollection with regard to the creation of the Hulk. Yes, it is. Now we have one relating to Iron Man. This is an excerpt uh, according to the archives of Wyoming uh, of a speech that you gave in July 1st, 1984, talk at the Heroes Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. Shout out heroes. Shout and drum. Uh, let's play this one. Video is playing. By the time we did Iron Man, we were really facing challenges, and I was drunk with power, and I was looking to do things that nobody thought could be done. Young people, as you know, are not really big war fans. And everybody said, Stan, you can't do a comic book where the hero is a guy who manufactures munitions for the war effort. This is not going to seem glamorous to our readers. And also, he's a big industrialist and something unintelligible. In those days, people were intent on being hippies and naturalistic stuff, but here's this guy who represented the establishment. I said, wouldn't it be something if we could do him and make him popular? And of course, the one way to make anybody popular is you make him tragic or pathetic in some way. So I tried to turn him into something pathetic. I said, a weak heart is as good as anything. And we did succeed, and I'm happy to say that the readers did kind of like him. I always thought of modeling him after Howard Hughes. I thought of him as a sane Howard Hughes. And that was a sane Stanley. That's right. And that also, uh, that video clip is consistent with your recollection of the creation of Iron Man. Yes. Only a couple more. Let's focus on Thor. You testified previously about Thor. We have a clip that, uh, according to the University of Wyoming Archives, you did an interview with a Dick Syatt, WFAA, News Talk Radio in Dallas. This is dated May 1977, and I'm going to play a clip of that interview for you. I think this is an audio. Audio begins playing. 
the host, Dick, says, I'm Dick Syatt, WFAA, Talk 57. Stan Lee is on the line with us. You know, we needed new heroes. Finally, I said to myself, the only thing stronger than what we have, the Hulk is the strongest mortal on Earth, we'll get a guy who is a god. Nobody has really done anything with gods lately. So I thought to myself, let's see now. What kind of gods are there? People, there have been a lot of stories about Greek gods and Roman gods. Nobody has really done much with Norse gods. That ought to be interesting. Norse gods? Norse, you know, N-O-R-S-E, you know? Yeah. So, okay, I thought I'd always liked the idea of Thor, the god of thunder. And I had seen pictures of him, and I read a lot of books of legends when I was young. And there was always a shot of Thor with a huge hammer, you know? And I figured, hey, that will be great. We give Thor... What a great weapon a hammer will be because the superhero always needs some sort of visual gimmick. And I enjoyed the idea that later on I could have him talk not, not in normal dialogue like, take that, you rat, but thou based varlet. Pseudo-Shakespearean and biblical dialogue. And once again, that was your voice? Very much so. And again, is that consistent with your recollection? Yes. Concerning the? Yes. Creation of Thor. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, let's look at page 96 of the Stanley Conversations book. And again, this goes back to the interview you gave Leonard Pitts back in 1981. And this part of the interview is discussing the X-Men. And what page? The X-Men. Did you say? Page 96, towards the top of the page. Pitts is asking you, quote, the X-Men. Uh, and you respond. They were originally called the Mutants, but my publisher at the time thought that the readers wouldn't know what a mutant was, so I changed it to the X-Men. We're always looking for new superheroes, not so much for new heroes as for new explanations of how they came about. And I was getting tired of radioactive accidents. Uh, I felt, why not get some people who were born with, who were born the way they are, uh, who had mutant powers. So we created X-Men. And that's consistent with your recollection? Yes. With regards to the creation of X-Men. And last but not least, we have a video... Also part of that interview you gave January 12th, 2000, and this one focuses on the X-Men video begins playing. And that was how it started. I said, hey, I'm going to use mutants. Then they can be whatever they want to be. Hey, they were born mutants, P prove them wrong. So then I had to figure out who they'd be. And oh, I got to tell you a funny thing. Here again, I had a thing with my publisher. I wanted to call the book, The Mutants. I thought it was very dramatic, The Mutants. He said, Stan, he patted me on the head. Stan, our readers won't know what a mutant is. Well, he was still paying my salary, so I said, I have to come up with another name. Incidentally, I'm having a great time, so I have to come up with another name. And I thought, and I thought, and I don't remember whether I got the name first or I thought of Professor Xavier first, but somehow or other, we have Professor Xavier with an X. And I figured these characters have an extra power, their mutant power, and somehow the idea hit me. Let's call them the X-Men. A little bit sexist, perhaps. There was a girl in the group, but nobody protested in those days. So we called them the X-Men. And I presented that title to my publisher who said, now that's a good title. And I said to myself, if the readers won't know what a mutant is, how will they know what the hell an X-Men is? But I needed a title and I didn't want to argue and there we were. That's you again? That's my recollection. Consistent with your recollection? Consistent. Okay. Getting to talk like a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Please don't. Stay as a comic person. Let's go back uh, for one second to we have a copy of what we first marked as Stanley Exhibit 1, which was the affidavit with the attached schedule. It's probably in that pile somewhere. 
I believe this is an affidavit that you testified about earlier, Mr. Lee, and it was a schedule of characters attached to the affidavit. And the question I really just have, you can take a look at the schedule. These are all, I believe, uh, you testified that these characters you either created or co-created. There are three of them here that I'm not really sure of. I don't really remember them that well. The one is Richard Fisk. I don't remember that one. I may have created him. I just don't remember. The other one is Mr. Fear, a.k.a. Machine Smith. I don't remember that. And there's one, Amir, I guess. I, I don't remember recall that the others though i think you do recall all those and cre and created or co-created the others yeah those three you just don't have a clear recollection of pardon me those three you have no clear recollection of that's right one way or the other that's right the question i have for you really is very simple you testified at some length over the last few hours about the manner in which your characters were created at marvel mm -hmm. and this was the same method used in connection with the creation of the characters that are set forth in schedule a i'm sorry would you say that last part of that was the same method used in the creation of the characters that are set forth in schedule a oh yeah sure uh it was the same kind of method right kirby's lawyer are you referring to the marvel method marvel lawyer the methodology that he testified to over the last several hours is what i'm referring to the answer is yes yes kirby's lawyer vague and ambiguous like like my idea of this uh, Kirby lawyer, I'm not going to say because he might still be on the, on the books. Never mind. Uh, Marvel lawyer, I have no further questions at this time. Kirby's lawyer, I have no questions. I'm reserving my questions for defendant's deposition of Mr. Lee. Uh, Kirby's, I'm no, Stan Lee's lawyer, we're gone. The videographer says any stipulations. Mr. Quinn says no. Videographer concludes today's deposition of Stan Lee. All right, man. So that concludes the Stanley deposition. Like the the PDF that we constructed is uh, over a hundred pages, but it turns out that uh, there's two versions of the deposition that are uh, sort of butted together. So uh, on the record, man, we have this very clear. Like they sit them down, they ask them these specific questions, and then they play video evidence to back it up. You know, showing that stuff to the Kirby lawyer. Look, man, we just ask him these things. And for about three decades, he's been giving us the same story. Who owns it? The company owns it. Very interesting reveal that Stan Lee was due 10% of these Marvel movies and stuff. Yeah, you always hear about Hollywood bookkeeping. It makes me curious like what he was Matter actually gross. getting. Because, I mean, all we hear about are the gigantic box offices of all these Marvel movies. If he was really due 10% of something in there, like... That'd be a nice payday. Yeah, man. Might make that, that old mistake. Uh, there, um, the, the writer who wrote, believe it or not, Forrest Gump is no, was a novel. And it's one of the most classic fuck-ups in contractual agreements because he did, I always forget, net or gross, whichever one is the one that you don't never get anything back. But he essentially got his, like, 100 Gs, and that's it on the biggest movie of that year. Maybe you sell more books. I don't ever remember seeing a novelization of Forrest <laughs> Gump in Walden Books or anything like that. That guy got hosed, man. That's funny. Yeah, maybe a bad lawyer, I guess. Um, they got into the stuff I wanted. You know, yeah. they, they kind of talked about trafficking stories around and, and the day-to-day -day operations of Marvel in the 50s and 60s. Uh, that was something that I was eager to hear. Um, I don't know that there's much 
insight gleaned from this as you say it's the same stories that stanley's been telling as long as stanley's been telling stories i think um it's interesting that you know again these depositions are interesting because it's sworn testimony like this is sort of the official story um so appreciate getting that in and listening to the marvel method and kind of its origins like one thing i you know i think every piece of this deposition that we've discussed this is three pieces I think they all touch on the Marvel method. One of the takeaways from today's for me is Stan recognizing, you know, like you start doing it out of necessity. I'm in the middle of one script. You need work. You're a freelancer. I got to give you something. So here's here's the plot. Go draw it. And then recognizing whenever this stuff comes back in, like, oh, there's a strength to this method because it allows the artist to really shine. You've got an all-star cast, legendary comic book artists. Once he starts seeing them break the stories down themselves, he realizes this is the strongest version of their stuff that's pretty good you know like that's that's a that's a bit of insight i hadn't seen before makes total sense to me and you hear you hear contemporary cartoonists and comic book artists talk about this so i think that's a real uh bit of insight you point to uh the dc comics of those days and they're very rigid in their structure lots of dialogue uh these guys trying to fit imagery around the dialogue and stuff it's it's Pepsi Coke, you know, kind of comparisons. It's Sega Genesis versus Nintendo kind of comparisons, man. Like there is a difference between the two. Hey, and I've worked full script and I can tell you like it feels like an illustration job. Yeah. You know, I I think my strength as a comic book maker is in the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And you strip a lot of that away with the full script. Yes. Yes. So this is not the last courtroom dramas that we are going to be covering on the uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe courtroom portion of the, uh, the Cartoonist Kayfabe YouTube channel. We have Todd McFarlane's deposition in relation to Neil Gaiman. We have... Golden uh, Age. We have some Golden Age depositions. Absolutely, man. include the Bob Canes and Will Eisner's... Uh, Max Gaines. I think uh, that could be really great. I think Jack Leibowitz is, is, is on there for a bit. Uh, but Cartoonist Kayfabe community, man, ask not what Cartoonist Kayfabe can do for you. Ask what you can do for Cartoonist Kayfabe. And if you uh, if you have some scoop on some documents out there, that's the other thing, too, man. We still have Michael Fleischer's stuff. We have Harlan Ellison's deposition. We have Gary Groth's deposition. That's going to be good stuff. Uh, you can put us in a, in, in a direction. People were talking about a Marv Wolfman uh, deposition in regards to either Blade or Nova or maybe both. Like let's let's get hold of all that stuff, man. This stuff is very insightful. It's historically historically significant, and with the mouthpiece mouthpiece of this channel, putting out some of the intricacies of this, we've got a lot of creators that listen to our stuff, man. It might make a couple of people think some things that they weren't necessarily uh, thinking about before some of these discussions come up man so a lot of stuff for us to continue unpacking as we continue our k our our courtroom epics good to go yes k favors like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell we'll notify you when new vids are available what's out there jimmy hulk grand design monster coming in march to comic shops near you now is the time to let those comic shops know that you want a copy of hulk grand design monster let them know which cover you want order all four why not but pre-order those copies so that your store can order enough for everyone. And uh, you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug where you can see some of my Hulk Grand Design original art and some of the process I went through to make that comic. 
Red Room, the Antisocial Network, is out on the stands now. That's a trade paperback that's collecting the 2021 issues of Red Room. But uh, beginning March 9th is Red Room Trigger Warnings issue number one. Going to be coming out on a uh, consistent monthly basis. Uh, every issue completely self-contained. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game in Red Room Comics. Uh, you can read those comics ahead of time on my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Jimmy and I have link trees in the description below this video where you can get to all of our stuff, uh, support our books, keep the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel running. What else do we have, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Another way to support the channel and keep things rocking, man. Given those marching orders, we're going to be on our way. Read more comics.